Hello and welcome to Elixir Talk, your semi-regular podcast about the Elixir programming language and ecosystem. My name is Desmond Bowie, and I am joined by my co-host, Chris Bell. Hello there, Desmond. How are you doing? Hello, Chris. You're sounding uh, a little different today. I do. In a better way. You sound a little echoey. Well, you're, you're still delightfully British. <laughs> um, I am a bit echoey because I'm in an echoey conference room, unfortunately. The best I could do today. But we have recorded in worse situations. Like one time I was sat on a stairwell. So, you know, <laughs> we, we make do at Elixir Talk. The scrappiest Elixir podcast. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember if anyone actually walked down the stairs. Did they? Um, Were you they saved? didn't, which was really lucky because otherwise it would have been really weird for them, like encountering this guy on the stairwell recording a podcast. And I don't even know what I was saying at that point. So, yeah, good, good job that no one was there. Uh, I would have gotten a kick out of that, but, you know, me and my penchant for um, chaos. But, um, but so what's new with you? What's the latest in Chris Bell? <sighs> what is new? Well, it's by the time you hear this, we would have had MPEX, which right now this week we're in like frantic mpex preparation mode um and i'm teaching the beginners training this year actually for the first time so um desmond you have taught that before i know i think right you did um and yes my first time teaching it so i'm just kind of cramming for that this week and trying to make sure everything is done for the conference that's on my shoulders um and yeah, it always feels like, I don't know if you get this as well. It always just feels like this mad rush at the end. We're all, we're like really chill most of the year. Everything's like kind of happening. It all feels good. And then all of a sudden it's like, boom, conference. So, um, just been trying to go through that. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. That's one of my favorite parts about like doing a conference, um, or an event in general is that you have that big rush and then the thing happens and then it's all over at once. Yeah. And then you just relax. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that's usually for me, that part is like the after party. You know, that's where it's like mm-hmm. sink a few beers, actually get to reflect on the fact that we just ran a conference. Um, so I'm, I'm excited. I'm emceeing again, actually, this year. So I kind of took over the mantle from you. So um, any tips, you know? Any tips? Well, um, when in doubt, I always told a bad joke. I don't see I don't have any of those they're all good so no, I'm kidding um I wish that were true but I will maybe practice some so that can be a thing that I do but you're also coming to town as well so we get to hang out our like RL so that would be a good good thing yeah it'll be great we might do a field recording of Elixir Talk if the stairwell wasn't good enough <laughs> yeah I think we tried that before and it was like a bunch of muffles right yeah it turns out not planning something uh, means it sometimes doesn't go off as well as you would like. Yeah, it's the scrappiest Elixir podcast around, folks. That's that's it. Um, but today we have... Um, it's not just us. Isn't that right? No, we have a very distinguished guest on the podcast today. Very distinguished. Uh, we're very pleased to welcome Fred Ebert to the podcast. Uh, sorry, Fred, if I butchered your last name. Uh, most of you... Most of you, I'm sure, have heard of Fred. He is a software architect at Genetech. He's written several books on Elixir, and he is also a board member at the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation. We're very pleased to have him on the show today with us. So welcome, Fred. Thank you. Hey, Fred. It's so good to have you on the show. Um, First of all, before we start, I have to apologize to Fred because I messed up our recording last week 
and totally wasn't there when we were supposed to record. So I want to publicly shame myself for that and say thank you for rescheduling. Um, and- that, was, that was the deepest echo possible for the recording. <laughs> <laughs> One week reverb. One week of whole reverb, yep. But we got there. We're here. Wow. We're ready to go. So, Well, now that we're here, what should we talk about? I mean, I have a bunch of things I would love to ask you. So as a big, big... Long-term, uh, long-time reader of your blog, um, I think that I would love to start by just asking you a bit more about the Zen of Erlang, and uh, I, you know, that's a that's an article I reference like constantly for everyone new learning Elixir, um, and I was just wondering if you had any continuations on that subject, and if there was something there that you wanted to kind of uh, illuminate a bit more for our listeners. Uh, the Zen of Erlang is essentially what I've, after years of using Erlang and OTP, uh, I tried to really bring into a condensed form for the, uh, you know, the core tenets of what system design looks like uh, in, in that environment. So I don't think I have a whole lot to add to this one uh, in a more modern time, unless you already know the language. And then uh, already know the framework as well for OTP because a, a, a big part of what I've written in the more recent posts is a bit more about how should you structure the actual supervision tree to gain the actual capabilities that you want and so on instead of just being the kind of uh, you know a sneak peek of what the features could allow you to do in the best of times. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think I spent a lot of time trying to just come up with a good way to explain this in a Varlang thingy. Uh, but getting to the more advanced topic, I think, uh, requires touching it a bit. It's not just a preview that you can give that easily. At least I think I- I'm close to a limit of what I could come up with for that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Totally makes sense. And I mean, just to rewind a bit as well, can you tell us about how you got into Erlang and how you kind of embarked on this journey and where you are today as well? Uh, so so that, that's, that all started at um, an older job where uh, essentially my role was to work on a chat system for uh, the website that we had. And at that point, Facebook had just gotten the first one out and uh, it was written in Erlang as well. Um, that was before they acquired WhatsApp. Uh, that was the first version of uh, Facebook chat, which they eventually rewrote to C++. Uh, but someone came on my came in through uh, Joe Armstrong's book on my desk and just told me like we need a new chat system. I want you to look into that and build it. And that's essentially how it started. I built a, a quick prototype um, using eJabberty and these kinds of chat systems. I learned a bit of the language, and then they canceled the project and I moved on to different jobs. But I started doing airline from that day on. Cool. How long so, ago was that? That was eight, uh, that was probably close to nine, uh, 10 years ago now. Oh, okay. So you've really seen the community kind of change and... Yeah. I mean, I, I've missed the earliest days because I think it's been open source for about 20 years now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I've seen, you know, the, the latest wave of all these changes that happened. When I started, there was no package manager. There was not even a build tool. Everyone was just still using make files and uh, mm-hmm. calling the earl-make comment or something like that. So I have a question. How does a language or ecosystem survive in those conditions? I mean, the idea of a language coming out now and doing well, if it doesn't have a package manager, if it doesn't have a good deployment story, like those would be non-starters. I think the question is about what kind of audience you have for the language. 
And uh, that might be true in a, you know, I'd say a modern language where you are in a market of going fast. And the thing that you have to do is talk to people who want to spin up a prototype in 15 minutes and be done with it or something like that. You know, the kind of a, the spiritual descendants of the Ruby on Rail five-minute blog post thingy, which is something I think Elixir is uh, right in the middle of that. Get started mm-hmm. fast, want to be productive and everything. Uh, back in 2008, uh, when I started, Erlang was really much closer to... Uh, you know, it, it was something that people usually learn extremely late in their careers, and they used it not because it was a fantastic new environment, but because they actually needed something that nobody else could do. Go was not there. Uh, you know, closure was about starting, I think, at that time. And just concurrency was seen as still extremely difficult. And so essentially, the people who would come to Erlang already usually had um, a way to build their code. And uh, were willing to take the effort to do that because they had a lot of the back back knowledge that you need uh, to be able to make your own ad hoc build tools for the things that you do. And so if you needed the solution later in your career, you didn't need, uh, I'd say, as much end holding. And you were ready to suffer through a lot more because there were not as many alternatives back then. And so uh, I think that played for a whole lot. And that's possibly why it took so long as well for it to improve to a better extent because if your community is people who self-select to play with these constraints uh, they are all okay with that and they won't have any incentive to improve that for a while and they might even resist further change and so that that's part of the thing that needed to be undone i think does that extend towards uh learning details about the language itself i mean you've written a couple of books you have a lot of experience operating elixir at scale uh how do you come by that knowledge um, I mean, in my case, it was just a lot of digging. Uh, I, I went through the entire standard documentation, uh, you know, page by page and just reading through it to figure it out. And when I was writing uh, Learn Some Erlang, one of the things that I did is that when I had a question like how did the try-catch come to be or something like that, I would just go look into uh, the history of the language, the source files, the mailing list archives and everything, and look at who made the proposal, and then I'd reach out to them directly mm. and ask them what the rationale it was, and then I would put that uh, on paper as part of my notes and everything. So I, I did a bit of a research work for people in there and trying to understand how it worked, and then that let other people learn faster and then you know, it kind of uh, jump starts uh, part of the thing. And then more tools and more blog posts and more stuff was coming out every day. And so everyone, we're still in that, you know, when the language was in its first hype cycle, everyone is super interested into learning everything they want or they can about it. And they're going to republish everything they learned. So it was a good phase to do that. Uh, Elixir has had the same phase uh, when it initially started and a bunch of people just telling you how they built something with Phoenix for the first time. And so you have a bunch of, you know, non-official resources explaining how to do the basic things popping up up everywhere. You just have to pick the right ones. And so Mm -hmm. that's really, I think, how it started. And when you talk about like the phases of language and the hype cycle, where do you think Erlang is right now? I think it's on, um, you know, it's stable. Uh, it's never going to be a mainstream language. I don't think it's going to die. There's this kind of theory that if you want to estimate the life of something, you just 
figure that you're probably in the middle of its life cycle. So if you're using a technology that's two years old, it might live up to four, something like that. Something like Erlang has been live for 30 years, open source for 20, so it might have another 20 years into it or something like that. Uh, but the adoption curve is rarely going to be much, much higher than it is right now. I think it's going to remain a very small niche community that's building infrastructure that is being used by everyone. Like you don't need that many developers to impact a lot of people. Um, Joe Armstrong, at least at some conferences, had the uh, um, mentioned that if you're sending any kind of message over mobile networks, uh, there's a 50% chance you're going over an airline component somewhere or something like that. So. Uh, it was never a large community. It's never going to be a large one, but I think it can still have a huge impact at that point. Elixir, I think, is already larger as a community, uh, but it's in a more it's in a broader state that has I I would say you know each app you write in Elixir for a commercial component might be reaching fewer people overall, just because it's not mm. infrastructure for the most part. It happens, but a lot of it right now is focused on websites, for example. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah, I mean, like, can you talk through some of your applications of Erlang? Um, you mentioned the chat app, um, and I know you worked at Heroku for a while as well, right? Right. So at Heroku, it was the um, it was the entire uh, logging infrastructure for a while, and then it became only the log router, which I think uh, Apple uses internally in some components because it was open sourced. At Heroku, it was also the uh, the main router for all the shared platform, which I think they are trying to replace piece by piece right now, but it's still running there uh, as part of a critical part of their infrastructure. Uh, I've worked at ad tech companies, so advertisement was using it. Um, right now we're developing here uh, a bunch of IoT components that would go into civilian infrastructure, for example. So uh, those might include uh, cities, airports, dams, or just coffee shops and stuff like that, where they use it to gather some data and translate protocols, for example. So uh, this is what uh, I'm doing right now. Cool. Yeah, so a, a lot of bigger infrastructural components, as you mentioned. Yep. Have you... Um, have you dabbled in much Elixir? And what's your kind of take on the on the differences in the language there as well? Uh, I mean, I, I've played with Elixir a good bit. Uh, I've not written anything in production with it. Uh, mostly my vision of the two languages is that they are extremely similar. Uh, you do have differences about the macros, the protocols, that kind of stuff, the pipe operator and everything. Uh, those are minor differences compared to everything that is similar between both languages. And so my kind of take on it is really, yeah, I mean, if I were to change Elixir to remove the things I dislike about it uh, to make them things I like more, I would end up with something more like Erlang in the first place. Like, I, I feel very at home uh, on that side of the fence. But frankly, the two communities uh, need to uh, cooperate better as a whole and gain from each other because of how much similarity there is between both sides of, of the fence compared to everything else. And that's part of the work um, I think that the uh, Erlang Ecosystem Foundation is trying to do. And uh, if you've grabbed a copy of uh, property-based testing uh, with Erlang and Elixir and proper, uh, that's part of that stuff too. Um, I've written the book using both languages at the same time because I wanted to show how similar it was. That was part of the reason at least. Nice. 
And uh, Desmond, do you want to talk a bit more about the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation as well? So the mission of the the foundation is to um, spread adoption of technologies. We're not allowed to say beam technologies, right? It's ecosystem technologies because a bunch of things compile to the beam and we don't want to be exclusive. Right. It's not necessarily the virtual machine itself. It can be the ecosystem. It can be unconnected libraries. And we also want to keep the door open to the idea that there might be a new implementation of the virtual machine at some point that is not the beam. And then won't have to, you know, rename the foundation or change its core mission. So um, whatever like pops up in this space, we want to make sure that everyone is talking to each other, that we do benefit from, for example, people who have been doing this for a long time, who have rich experience, um, and also people who are solving new problems in new ways and bringing, um, I would say, modern tooling into into the developer experience. Like They need to have a seat at the table that represents, in my opinion, the future of the language. So um, that's like, I look at the foundation's goals as both internal, internal to the ecosystem, fostering this communication, but also external. How do we go out into other communities and augur for these technologies? How do we say, okay, well, you've been using Java for this problem or C++ for this problem. We can solve it better, faster, cheaper um, with technologies on this platform. So yeah, that, uh, that's the goal of the foundation. And I mean, my role on marketing is uh, directly related to that. I mean, Fred is in charge of some more technical working groups, which... Uh, uh, I'm actually, I think, not in charge of any working groups, but I am a member of uh, the tools working group at that point and on the board itself. I think there might be more working groups that get started sooner than later, but at this time, I think I'm only on that one. I don't think we've got the documentation working group established yet, but it was part of the original plans at least. Cool. Can you talk a bit more about your involvement there as well then, Fred? Uh, for the tools working group, uh, our objective is really to kind of normalize and regroup efforts across the different tools that we have in the community. So for example, um, both Mix and Rebar3 are using the Hex package manager, and we want to coordinate efforts uh, on that point to help standardize all of that stuff. Well, not necessarily standardize, we still want the uniqueness of every tool to be there, but we want to be able to have this interoperability between libraries and build tools in a way that we're able to reuse each other's libraries. So. Uh, Part of that work has been done, and now Erlang project can start using Elixir dependencies the way Elixir projects have been able to use Erlang dependencies for a long period of time now. Um, we've got other things uh, on that front. A documentation working group, uh, not started yet. It should be coming soon because we've been rushing to get all the you know administrative and legal structure of the foundation up and going. Uh, is about really. Uh, upgrading the documentation specifically on the Erlang side so that it can work better for the Elixir folks as well as the Erlang folks. Um, yeah, I think Elixir has been doing a great, great job in having more readable documentation that people in the community willingly publish all the time, especially on hex docs and something like that, which is far, far rarer if you depend on underlying component. It's usually not there. Uh, you have to find it on the GitHub README if it's there at all. So it's part of the things that we want to improve from that point of view as well. No, I mean, um, I, I mean, your what, what's your vision there for the tools? So you said about kind of bringing together these two communities, but like, where do you see this going? As in um, the future of Erlang and the future of Elixir and 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 in the other things that run inside of the Erlang ecosystem. So. Um, 
let's start with the current state. The current state is that both communities have tools that they are mostly happy with. Um, I, I think the common use case is well covered in both cases. Mix is an extremely imperative tool where you run arbitrary script files as your configuration. Rebar 3 is extremely declarative where you just have a consult file that's just data structures that you can read and uh, they represent goals and objectives. We don't handle versions the same way for uh, dependencies and that kind of stuff. Uh, but the idea would be in the ideal scenario that really, uh, you know, to the extent of the library uh, making it possible, it should be possible for someone in Erlang to use an Elixir library, it should be possible for someone in LFE to use an Elixir library or an Erlang library, and to get that interconnection working in all cases. And right now, uh, Rebar 3, I think, is the build tool for three or four languages. Uh, directly are providing plugins to do it and what we're trying to do in making the right infrastructure to do that is to let all of these languages to use Elixir the way Elixir is able to do it right now from the other side. Uh, the ideal state in the future, I think it's a bit hard to say because right now um, probably in that, you know, at that place where um, the newcomers I've seen using Erlang have been fine with the tool uh, and there's a need for, I think, newer sets of eyes and fresher blood to be uh, thrown on the altar to figure out what it is that pisses them off so that we can address that. But right now, I think we're in a kind of a stable pattern from that point of view. The thing I would love to improve a whole lot is, I think, hot code loading uh, with releases. Right now, I think uh, the Elixir community has mostly collectively given up on using these features as too complex. Uh, the Erlang community makes use of them extremely rarely, and I strongly believe that this is a problem with uh, the tooling and the kind of uh, approach we have to teaching these things, um, rather than a problem with the feature itself. If you look at the current standard deployment pipeline that goes from CI to continuous development, that goes through a Docker image that you push on Kubernetes into some kind of cloud host, it is a extremely complex and painful to set up properly the first time around. And I think that hot code upgrades are currently far less painful than that if you know how they work. And so for me, it's not an impossible objective. It's that there should be a way for us to build the tooling and the kind of onboarding experience that makes it straightforward enough that it can be done easily by everyone. And this is something that I'd like to be able to improve over time. I don't know if I will be able to do it or have the opportunity to, but yeah. When people complain about a feature as something that's unusable, for me, that's probably an indication that the ergonomics of it and the tooling needs to be improved, not that the feature needs to be dropped. So I want to jump in here because uh, longtime listeners of the show will know that I'm a proponent of code reloading, hot code reloading. And I think it's a it's a cool way to do deployments. It's a useful way of doing deployments. Um, and a lot of the conversations... I've had with people about it, or honestly, a lot of the information I've seen on the internet has been something, something, something. This is cool. It's too complicated. Just ignore it. Go with your blue-green deploys. Like, deployment is sort of solved. Uh, nothing to see here. And maybe, like, uh, my standard line is, it might not be right for you, but at least understand how it works, when it's easy to do, when it's complicated, and then you can make the decision for yourself. I go and I think for a broader cycle. From... When Elixir started, the opinion of everyone is, don't touch OTP, it's too complex for now, you don't need it, you don't have to. And now everyone that mm -hmm. learns it is like, you have to learn it, you have to use it, it's great. 
And then when that happened, at some point, it was just how do you deploy the code? And then you had to figure out what the releases were. And that phase was happening in Erlang as well. Releases were too painful. We don't need them. We're just going to write a quick script and run that in a screen session or something like that until the tooling got good enough that everyone started using it straight that way. And then Elixir started doing the same, where right now in the latest release, I think 1.8 point something, they started having the uh, release command already as part of the tooling there. And in a year or so, I'm guessing that most people will be shipping actual releases. And so for me, it's a cycle of discovery where uh, initially you just want to ship something right now. And there is this learning cycle of knowing that a solution, a solution exists, but you have to figure out what it is and how to use it. And once you use it, uh, you start saying, well, why the hell was I not using this already? And uh, I think it though, I think it also ties into how we architect our applications because right. a lot of Elixir programmers are coming from Rails, which is yeah. stateless web server. And so they build their Elixir apps in the same way. And in that scenario, uh, hot code loading makes less sense. I think it's easier paradoxically, but you know, if you don't have state in memory, then um, you know, what's the big deal with taking something offline, doing a rolling deploy. So I think the community still needs to figure out like, do we build our application statefully or do we not? Right. I mean, that, that's definitely a part of it. And, uh, you know, that, that's kind of weird because we say that, but Phoenix is essentially a bunch of templates when you start your first project. The right structure could already be provided to everyone. It, it was just not built that way in the first place. And then they started playing a bit with umbrellas to uh, bring it a bit closer, I think, to what would be a standard OTP structure. And there was still a bit of friction there. Um, but frankly, uh, I think that if we find the right kind of structure or templates or approach to do that, people are going to be kind of fine with it. It's just that we haven't yet figured out the right recipe to do it. Uh, mm. Yeah, the complexity can be hidden in some way or be put in a way that is more discoverable without being done on an incompatible path that requires you to rewrite everything. But Fred, how do you think about that in this age of, as you mentioned before, like Docker containers and Kubernetes and things like that? Like, It feels a bit like we're trying to swim against the tide if we're trying to do hot code uploads and uh, upgrades, I mean, sorry. Yes, yes and no, because frankly, everyone who uses Docker and the kind of immutable architecture still keep cheating for their databases because they have stateful applications where it does not apply. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Sure, if you can have an immutable infrastructure where you can just take the front end out and do something else and bring it back in, sure, that's fine. If you're working on infrastructure, you don't want to just blow away your RabbitMQ queue every time you do a deploy and lose like the thousands of messages that were in there. So it, it, there is a part of it where you, you want to say that you'll use it when you need it. And there is a part of it that's just like, well, sometimes you have to do it. The other point I would say is that it's a lot faster to deploy a hot code loading uh, usually than it is to restart infrastructure and shuffle nodes around and everything like that. Um, from experience, we could deploy to a 70 node cluster uh, in, in something like under five seconds by doing it in parallel everywhere. If you want to rotate your infrastructure during the connections and everything, your deploy could be taking from, I don't know, five minutes to an hour depending on how fast the connection training can be done. So if you want to enable extremely quick development um, and continuous delivery, I think that in some cases, especially in stateless application, hot code upgrades have the ability to speed up your entire pipelines in, in incredible ways. 
right? And so the reason that we don't see it and that it's not being used is that pretty much no other languages out there have that capability. And so the ergonomics in these tools and the support is not always there. Uh, but we could have what is essentially the quickest pipeline on the market by doing that, where you do the CD, you have a, a thousand front-end nodes, you send the order in parallel, and they're just upgraded. If any one of them crashes, it rolls back automatically, and you could do that in under a minute if you wanted to. But right now you can't because you need to swap all the nodes, train the traffic, play with the schedulers, make sure that everything gets back in the right area. And then when you restart a node, you might end up in a place where if you're in the cloud, you have a noisy neighbor in the area and you have to debug that and you get extremely more sensitive to everything. I, I think that, yeah, uh, there are good reasons to sometimes cheat out of the immutable infrastructure, even if you're not writing a database. It's, it's certainly an interesting view. I I'm like, I think so many people now are just treating it where it's just like, yeah, just, you know, just restart and roll. But you're totally right. It could be a very unique, a unique selling point of the language. And I know it's already there, but I, I totally agree right. with you. I, that I the, mean, and you, you the, can think of like configuration changes, right? If your configuration right, required absolutely. a new build and you just shipped a new build and there's a bug in the configuration, it rolls back automatically because the release is able to do that. If the process crashes and restarts, it automatically restarts on the older version if you didn't make it permanent in the first place. And so you could do configuration changes that self rolled back. That could be a thing you could do, for example, which is a huge, huge problem right now in the wild because if you have a wrong configuration, you kill the entire cluster in most cases. And that gets to be an incident report everywhere. Uh, we would have the ability to fix that or to try something different, but the existing software pipeline is not set in a way that we can do that. That's a great point. Yeah, I, I would love to see us like think about the tooling around it. Like, I, I think like you, you kind of nodded to this, but the consensus in the community right now has always just been like, don't do it. It seems too hard. Like, let's just ignore it. And like, I think treating that as a tooling problem is really interesting, you know? Yeah, like, I mean, th there is a knowledge problem in there, which is it has an overhead. Totally, you have to sure. take some practices or something. Um, and figuring out the right user experience and the right developer experience is going to be a bit complex. And I don't have a good solution right now. I've been trying to think it a bit over. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely trying up to see about which ways that could be interesting and well done in some cases. Mm. So has your experience with hot code upgrades been good like in the past? Is that something that you've actually actively been, uh, what you've been using for deployments? Uh, we've been using it in extremely stateful applications in the past. Uh, at Heroku for the logging router, for example, there's a lot of logs in flight. We had clusters that went from 30 to 70 nodes in there, and we were able to deploy, deploy live without losing a single log message or closing a single connection by using that. Uh, and, you know, these deploys would be a lot faster than the ones we had that required rolling deploys where you have to, you know, coordinate between registering with the load balancer to remove the connection but not kill them and then do the entire thing that way. You know, it's in a way so much simpler because you can do it in isolation if you want to do it right. Whereas if you want to do a rolling restart, you need to coordinate with a crapload of other services and registrations and stuff like that to make sure that it's happening okay. Um, in some cases, we didn't do it at all. Uh, and uh, I've had some applications or prototypes here at Genetech where we were using it for, uh, you know, hot code upgrades of uh, 
security monitoring applications say that you're forwarding a video feed from a security camera from an on-site location to in the cloud, uh, you won't have redundant connections for that camera. You don't want to interrupt the video feed uh, in a place where it has to do with security. And so we had uh, that little prototype that showed that you could just drag and drop the package you wanted to install, press the button, and then it upgraded your code live without interrupting the video feed at all, which turned out to be a great feature because we could guarantee things that no other person in the market could do. So, I mean, we talked a bit about stateful and stateless applications earlier, and you said about, you know, maybe Phoenix could be providing a bit more out of the box to make that a bit easier. It, like what's your what's your thought on like all of us doing elixir uh and not really using otp that much i mean we are in certain places right of course like we're building on right. top of it but do you, i mean i i just wonder if there's if there's something there where you know we're we're not really leveraging the entirety of this ecosystem and this language and yes and i mean the web especially as a stateless thing is kind of a it's built in a standard way that people carry over that you don't necessarily need it. Uh, I would say that in the web or service concept, the thing that I, I think Elixir folks are missing the most on, and this is a personal question and taste about how I assist, uh, design a system, is that something like Ecto or an ORM, um, I see it as middleware. I don't see it as a model. The true model that I have should be actually hiding the idea that it's going over to a database or to uh, S3, to a file on disk or something like that. And I should be able to change the implementation uh, from end to end without it having any impact in the rest of the application. And so for me, the thing that is kind of um, annoying me in a lot of uh, monolithic web stacks like that is that this domain-specific requirement about how uh, the data gets stored ends up leaking the kind of API you have all the way through sometimes up to the templates, depending on the language where you are. And if you make that separation of um, the model for your data has to be entirely isolated and does not bleed into anything, then quickly your web framework becomes a lot less useful because you have the routes and you have the controller, but you have to wire everything by hand again. And it kind of undoes the entire monolithic approach of that. So my kind of point of view is that this is not how I would personally design a service or a system. Um, but if I take that stance, then I would not use Phoenix in the first place for a lot of things. It's still available for a lot of interesting things. So I, I try not to have too much of an opinion of it. Uh, I'm trying to avoid the web as a whole uh, in, in terms of designing <laughs> services and websites. I, I like to work in infrastructure better. And so um, I have a Carbogen's point of view there of uh, you're not doing the thing I like to do, but the thing I like to do is not necessarily useful for the kind of products people are deploying. So I see it as entirely fair. Well, and now there's voices in the community saying that they've, they're going further around the circle and saying you shouldn't use OTP, like either use something more primitive or we need a higher abstraction on top of gen servers. So we don't have to write the client interface and then all of these uh, handle info, handle cast, handle call, callbacks. Sure, <laughs> I guess. Um, yeah, no, I don't. I don't have an opinion on that. I think one of the bigger strengths of using something like OTP in the airline community has been that any project I participate to whatsoever always has the same kind of components and way to be structured. And it never takes me a lot of time to understand how it works because this is this kind of common language that exists through the entire community. 
Um, so something higher level, I wouldn't mind, but it needs to have adoption to be as useful. I don't think that saving, you know, 5% of the lines of code I would write because there's slight repetition would be worth it if it means that everyone hopping on my project has to spend, uh, you know, 25% more time learning about that new layer of a framework on top of it or something like that. Um, it's fine that there's a lot of new domain knowledge they have to acquire in each new application, but there is a strong advantage in being able to have this kind of a, yeah, the shared language within all the implementations and all the project structures that you have all around. So you're not a big fan of Elixir's macros? Uh, I'm, I'm usually a fan of macros when I'm doing toy projects, but if I'm working on a team, I usually greatly dislike macros, especially when they change semantics of existing constructs, but in a very, very narrow context. And now you have to be aware about all these different contexts and how they interact and that stuff like that. So, you know, if I'm working on a toy project for fun, I might be uh, cheaping out on tests. I will be cheaping out on some usability. I will be glad to use macros that make me go faster. But if I'm working on a team, uh, of, you know, 5 to 10 to 15 people and we're shipping a product that might be maintained for 10 years, 5 years, 15 years, uh, then I want more tests. I want more documentation. I want it to be clear. I want fewer macros. And all of these practices are a kind of a gradient of strictness where uh, the more long-term I expect the thing to work, the stricter I should be uh, in terms of, you know, the base knowledge you have to have to get into this code base. And part of it is a kind of, you know, it's a communication channel that is extremely asynchronous of what I wrote uh, three years ago being read five years into the future or something like that. And the language and the subset of the language we use impacts how people are going to consume the source code there that is in there in the system as a whole. So mm -hmm. I, I tend to like sometimes sticking to a more common subset because in the long term, I think it helps uh, not necessarily readability, but maintainability. Right. There is a difference between the simple, the easy stuff. There is a difference between readable and easy to understand. And a lot of things that are annoying to write because they're kind of repetitive or kind of verbose, I think help maintainability and understandability in the long term. So I don't mind boilerplate for a lot of things because it ends up being a kind of visual pattern that is easy to see. I see behavior with these functions in there. I know it's a server. I know what I expect. And it's not a new grab bag of surprises every time. The base semantics are there. Hmm. Do, do you think there's a world where like having macros that can produce DSLs that more... That can express your business language more easily will would make that easier to maintain in the long run or do you just think that's a you know misnomer there's a question of layers there right uh it's the same thing as if you do bdd and uh, not bdd but domain driven design and uh when you get in mm. there there's this idea that there is a core domain area where maybe a dsl makes sense on your core transformations or something um, but if what you have is a bunch of state that maintains connections to databases, there's not necessarily a reason to have a DSL that impacts that layer because the transformations that you have into your core data uh, should not necessarily have their concerns meeting and crossed with storage, for example. And if you're dealing with storage, maybe you don't want to have all the networking details uh, tangled up with uh, you know, the syntax of the abstraction language that you have if it's something like SQL or something like that. So DSL, I think, is something 
I want to treat with a lot of care because essentially uh, you're promoting yourself to the status of language designer, which uh, not everyone can do. I don't think I could do it really great myself. Uh, one of the risks that you always have is that you write in a language and you get the exceptions in a different language, which is never fun either. And so I would tend to say that a DSL should have an extremely narrow scope. And for a lot of them, I like to be extremely declarative and just say, give me a data structure. And how it is interpreted is essentially the DSL that you have. So if you can represent it as a list of tuples, as maps, or something like that, that's usually good enough. Um, the interpretation is what gives meaning to the data on top of it, usually. So yeah, my, my stance on DSL is also extremely conservative from that point of view. Makes sense. Cool. So, I mean, I'd like to switch gears slightly, um, Fred, and ask you a bit about your property testing book. And if you could, um, first of all, just talk to the audience a bit about uh, what property testing is and what you cover in your book as well. Right. So property-based testing is in a nutshell. Um, well, there's no nutshell. It's too complex to be in a nutshell. There's two big components of it. Uh, one of them is that you have this thing called a property, which is an abstract thing you say about your problem or your solution that should always be true, right? And so the canonical example of that is a sorted list. In a sorted list, no matter how it's implemented, each number is equal to or greater than the one that was before it in the list. This is a property of a sorted list. Um, if you are thinking about a more complex system, a stateful one, you might have properties such as um, a user with low levels of privilege is never able to take action on extremely sensitive data or something like that. This might be a property. This is a kind of invariant or thing in your system that you expect to be true no matter how it's implemented. And so part of property-based testing is writing these as a test. The second part of it is writing data generators. So instead of just taking an example and saying, well, if I have a user with this level and then I make it do this action, uh, I should see this specific result. The generators tells you or lets you describe in abstract terms what are all the kinds of data you could have. If you have a user that can take some action, then I want to know uh, how can I generate any random user? What are the privileges levels? What are all the kind of API calls they should be able to do? And what are all the kinds of results that they might be able to get? And this is what you would do. So you take that extremely general uh, property that you have, all the random data you can generate, and the test is just going to smash them together to try to find a case where it is not true. And property-based testing, in essence, is that. It's this idea that you have to think at a higher order or at a higher level about your system and your program, figure out the underlying principles, and then give it the tools to try to break them. Awesome. And so this this book is out right now. We'll put a link in the show notes as well. Um, and you go through, I think you mentioned earlier, you go through Erlang and Elixir examples in the book as well, right? Yep. Yeah, that was a huge part of uh, trying to figure out how to write that book to be interesting. It's all the examples and all the sample code, uh, bar a few minimal examples, are done both in Erlang and Elixir. And mostly it was super easy to do because translating one language to the other is rather straightforward for the, uh, for the most part. Um, but yeah, so you should be able to use either of these. It's using proper uh, in Elixir, it's prop check. I'm not using stream data because stream data is uh, 
at the time of writing and right now it's far more restricted in what it lets you do like it does not let you do uh, fancy stateful testing which is one of the most interesting parts of the book uh, and of the framework as a whole so it goes uh, with prop check and yeah, it, it tries to go from the basic principles, how to think in properties, uh, telling you when to use them, not to use them, how to use them in a TDD fashion, how to use it to guide building a system, and then going into uh, fancier stuff, like really stateful testing, how it could be done. And uh, part of it, for example, one of the examples that we have in the most advanced case is writing a little um, bookstore with a database that you write uh, requests to and from and stores everything in PostgreSQL and finds bugs, for example, where um, we randomly generate Unicode valid strings and everything and find that um, all the Postgres libraries are sensitive to null terminated strings. And if you put one in whatever of your fields, you essentially kill the queries that you have. And you wouldn't find that. Uh, just by coming up with examples, but it's one of the things that property-based testing finds really simply by just testing basic APIs and generating random data while doing it. So these kinds of things and state transitions uh, are all covered in there. And property-based testing is not something that will replace test-driven development or standard unit tests. Uh, but frankly, every time there's, you know, every project has this kind of part where you go, this is the critical part. If that bit is wrong, we're completely screwed like you are super happy to have it as a tool and that's what everyone I've taught it to have been using it for. This is a critical part to just go for that kind of testing first because they know, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a bit much more, it's a bit more of an investment in terms of time, uh, but it gives them much more reliable results that they can trust more. And so essentially it's kind of the next level testing for the critical stuff until you're comfortable enough and your team is comfortable enough to use it in more places. But so do we need this approach for all of our tests or is it really just for these sorts of things that are open-ended? I mean, you don't need it for, you don't need tests in some cases, right? People have been happily shipping crappy software with <laughs> or without tests. So the idea of a need uh, is a bit arbitrary. You don't need to have that. You don't need documentation. You don't need to have clean code and you can still ship something that's going to work. Uh, but when you want code that is a bit easier to maintain, you want more tests that are written in a given way. And I think uh, property-based testing is part of that gradient. If you feel a bit stricter about the kind of testing you want to do uh, to get possibly what you feel are higher quality results, then it gets to be interesting as a practice. Uh, there are still a lot of places where extracting properties and writing them, uh, you know, it's more work than you feel is necessary. And so people are just going to write regular unit tests and it's going to be fine. Uh, and as you get more familiar and comfortable with the technology, the perceived effort to write a kind of test gets lower and lower and eventually they replace more and more of them. But you know, I would be a liar if I said that you need it or that you need unit tests because, frankly, I've seen too much software shipped without either to say that it's impossible to do it. Mm -hmm. Where, so, where have you seen property-based testing really shine? I think you mentioned like some of the like more complex edges in the system, but can you give some concrete examples from your past? Uh, yeah, I, I actually, this is one from a coworker I had. Uh, I have who worked on uh, a thing that lets you um, play and set uh, permissions as on a Linux or BSD system that gets translated to how the file parses them. 
and found out that if you submitted the right Unicode strings, you could combine uh, your username with or the group ID or whatever field that you have with the underlying structure of the text file. And so if you had the wrong approach to parsing them, it would work 99% of the time. But if someone sent it a combining mark or combining character, you could inject new users and permission in the file. So that, that was a very interesting one. It was deep in the system. It was not at the edges at all. And it was just through uh, due diligence and testing that uh, he found about that. Uh, I, I've had ones where, um, you know, there was a bug that would happen in a file if it was open, closed, written to, reopen and close or something like that in that or in a very specific order that would, in some cases, lose some updates or corrupt some bits of text. And so it was able to find um, these kinds of use cases. Uh, a lot of times when I use property-based testing right now, I do them in a core part as a kind of TDD approach where I write the properties as I write the system. And a lot of times I just go, oh, you know what? The thing I was doing was an, an entirely wrong. The mental model I had of the underlying system and how it should work is not actually how it should be working. And it's fixing the bug in my mind before it even enters the code. Um, one interesting case I had was working with a file system uh, where the same property tester wrote, kept breaking in all kinds of ways that I had trouble finding about. And it turns out it was, uh, you know, you have the standard stuff like limitations between case sensitive and case insensitive path. Um, one of them is that we found a limitation of uh, the Erlang file implementation where we would f-sync all the applications, but we also had a function, uh, all, all the files, but we also have a functionality uh, that lets you create directories and those cannot be synchronized right now in Erlang. I think there's a pull request pending. And so that operation was uh, sensitive to race conditions under some type calls because you could expect the directory to be there, it wouldn't be in place, and then it crashed in some rare cases and it could find that. Um, but we found about that before we even, f you know, had the thing written. And so you can just put a temporary file in there with the right command. And then if you do the F-sync on the file, then you know that the directory is in place and stuff like that. So for a lot of these cases, when you start early enough, uh, they don't catch just tricky bugs to prevent them from ever being part of the system because you you sometimes don't take the wrong approach to designing your thing. So that is not a very, very clear uh, and direct example, but that's been more relevant to my experience with it. It's kind of exploratory testing. It lets you shine a light on things you didn't know you didn't know. Cool. Um, so again, I'd like to switch gears and just ask you, like, what are you, what are you thinking about right now? Like, what's top of your mind? You, you blog a lot. You write a lot about systems design and architecture. What, what are you currently um, kind of thinking through? Uh, right now, I'm playing a whole lot with uh, resilience engineering. Uh, texts like "Behind Human Errors" by David Woods. Uh, and that kind of material, which is really about you know, you have code that tolerates and can recuperate from errors and that's robustness. Uh, resilience is that idea that in complex systems, it's not just about uh, how the code handles the errors you could see coming or the classes of errors you could see coming. It's how your system, including the people in it, adjust to unforeseen circumstances that they have never seen before and can transform and adapt the system to keep it going. And this is a deeply uh, human mechanism 
and has to do with what they call socio-technical systems, which is how do people and their computers and their machines interact and how do they communicate and how do you carry all these expectations to make sure that when something truly surprising happens, you're not just paralyzed into failure and you find a way through it. Uh, that includes working over all of these things. So it has to do with maintainability, it has to do with observability, it has to do with operability, it has to do a lot with uh, knowledge sharing and how you structure your communication structures uh, within a team and stuff like that. And I've been enjoying reading that about that a whole lot. And HBO has this Chernobyl show that just started and I'm just reading through all the incident reports and how that stuff went through and, and enjoying the dissection of incidents a whole lot right now wow is it is this like coming from a place of um like aircraft and like maintaining and running like systems like that as well right yeah it goes in there it goes in the hospitals and intensive care units uh it goes into computer stuff computer stuff is really a late player to that game it's still a very very young discipline that started in the early 2000s and it has its roots in uh human factors which started with um you know, aircrafts in the 40s when they found out that some types of airplanes had a lot more failures than other ones and they figured out that the wing flaps and um, the landing gear had similar commands that were put one right next to each other and that led to right. pilot confusion and that they could structure things and the entire the entire ergonomics of their systems in such a way that uh, you could prevent or encourage uh, certain behaviors and patterns and how to surprise the operator and how to avoid that surprise. And so all of these systems have that and computers and software systems are kind of late comers to the game, but it's super interesting and I'm loving digging into that right now. All right, so can we expect a blog post some point soon on this topic or a conference talk or? Uh, maybe, I've started playing a bit with that. Um, I have this blog post about um, operable systems and uh, mm -hmm. I've made a variant of that uh, at the Elixir conference in Mexico and the BeamConf in San Francisco earlier this year that was called Operable Erlang and Elixir and this is kind of the uh, lowest level approach about how we can structure our systems to be a bit more operable for the humans at the back that need to make a good mental model about how things work and so that's been my first attempt at distilling that stuff there's probably more coming but i don't know what yet right now i'm just in that phase of absorbing all the information i can and maybe insights are going to come in a few months or years i don't know um you never know how or when it's going to be useful but eventually it happens but right now i'm just yeah absorbing as much as i can because i find it super interesting mm -hmm. that's great yeah i i look forward to uh reading more as uh i probably should have said earlier i'm just a huge fan of your writing and your work and your talks so it's uh it's great to hear what you're doing next and all the things you've been doing and uh, thank, you. thank you so much for the content you pushed out to date as well so Are there uh in this upcoming blog post there are going to be uh illustrations as well uh i don't know i mean illustrations are a lot of work frankly <laughs> i i don't have a blog post lined up i want to write one about my uh 10 years in the airline community uh, that's the only one I have planned right now, even though I've written nothing about it. Um, got a little side project with uh, Tristan Slaughter about, uh, Tristan is the uh, co-maintainer of Rebar 3 along with me, about something more similar to adopting Elixir, but applied to Erlang and specifically releases and stuff like that. But I don't have anything that's truly planned. It's mostly whenever I will feel like it, I will write it down. But right now it's 
all right not to do it. And yeah, illustrations, um, I like doing them, but they are extremely time-consuming. And so I tend to use them only when they're truly necessary. I know it's a big part of the charm of uh, learning some Erlang, but it contained yeah. like 600 drawings and ended up maybe taking a year of the time of the part time it took me to write the book. And uh, frankly, I would not necessarily expect as many drawings anymore just because of how time consuming it is, possibly for conference talks, because it's a much more visual medium in the first place. Um, but I'm trying to be more careful with my time and get a better you know, work life balance than I had back then. Mm hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that Fair. sounds like a good idea for all of us, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, so fewer it's, drawings for the people, but more free time for me. Nice. <laughs> it's a fair trade-off. I hope so. Well, thank you so much, Fred, for being on the show today. Um, it's been amazing having you here and just picking your brain on all of these different subjects. Um, for the listeners out there, where can people find you online and where can people see you next? If you're talking at any conferences, uh, do you have show notes? I could put links in there for that one, but we I, definitely have show notes. Right. Yeah. So I have the same username mostly on Twitter, on uh, I guess Elixir forums, on the IRC, on the Slacks, both for Erlang and Elixir. So I'm pretty easy to find usually. I'm also on the Erlang mailing lists, along with a lot of other people. So yeah, I try to be available at the same time. Awesome. We'll put those in the show notes as well. But um, just want to say a huge thank you for having you for, uh, well, want to say a huge thank you for you being on the show today. Can't get my words out. Too much caffeine. But, and, and I'm really glad we got to reschedule this and do it. So is there anything else you wanted to add? Any other shout outs or anything you want to promote? I can't think of anything right now, which I probably hit myself over later, uh, but not for the time being. <laughs> Well, well, we'll definitely put a link to your book there and uh, to your blog and some other things you've done and definitely learn, learn, learn you some Erlang as well. So we'll put that in the show notes. All right. Thank you. Cool. cool. Well, thanks, Fred. This has been another uh, charming episode of Elixir Talk. Uh, Chris, do you want to give the short spiel about... Definitely. So um, thank you as always for listening. You can get us, um, you can rate the podcast and wherever you're getting this podcast right now, if you could hit that rating button, that'd be very much appreciated and give some reviews and tell all your friends about it as well. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so at elixirtalk.com or we're elixirtalk on Twitter as well. And we do sometimes answer questions from the community, which you can do on github.com slash elixirtalk slash elixirtalk. So thank you very much for listening, folks. And uh, keep, keep elixiring. elixiring. <laughs> <laughs>